0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. This is Toby Miller here, and I'm with my friend Sean Cubitt. Sean, how are you? I'm good, Toby. Nice to have you. We're in, as, as many men have said. <laughs> now,
1: we're in your office, your suite. Uh, my suite? My, my, um, yes, my, my penthouse.
0: You're in, we're in your penthouse in the, and I love this, professor... Stuart Hall building. Everybody yeah. else is just Sean or Richard, isn't yeah. But he? Well, he has to have Professor.
1: professors. Uh, for uh, those of a, a, a squeamish disposition or lacking knowledge of the real entrails of British popular culture in the <laughs> 1970s, there was another Stuart Hall who oh. was a television presenter. <laughs> and who
0: is now a free
2: man. And who is
1: now a free man. They couldn't, <laughs> yes, so... Um, uh, oh, but, that's interesting. So the um, yeah. uh, our communications people thought that since we were a media department and people might might, might think that we were going to call ourselves Silver Black or yeah. uh, something else, uh, mostly not Jimmy Savile, but they, they did um, think for a moment that uh, Stuart Hall might be misinterpreted by our uh, potential oh, student body.
0: I should say, and this is because I honestly didn't know this <laughs> was the case, but as Sean rightly says, see, uh, the venerable scholar and activist and curator and all sorts of things, Stuart Hall, shared a name with this guy who uh, was a very clever BBC TV and radio presenter and populist, but who was involved in numerous sexual crimes against young
2: people, Mm
0: -hmm. uh, for which he has just recently been uh, actually allowed to depart her Majesty's prisons, and mm. so there is this unfortunate connection. So I get it, I yeah. didn't know that when I made this provocation.
1: But Stuart, um, our Stuart Hall, um, mm. who was the one of the central figures in British cultural studies, um, was head of the Birmingham Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies, where a number of goldsmith staff worked uh, and did their uh, graduate school, so people like Angela McRobbie and Dave Morley who are here, Um, And he also worked as an activist, as you said, a number of our other staff, Julian Enriquez, my co-head, Sarah Ahmed, a number of others worked with Stuart and a number of fronts during um, the development of uh, anti-racist politics under uh, the GLC, the development of um, what became multiculturalism in the um, 1980s and then into post-colonial work and his work on neoliberalism in the mm. um, 90s and into the 2000s. And Stuart was a great friend to many of us, a mentor, guide, and um, mm. one of the most significant um, intellectuals in the UK in the last 50 years. So we, we own kind of a, a lot of affection on a personal level, but also mm. wanted mm. to recognise that he is probably Britain's leading um, post-colonial intellectual uh, yeah so yeah it, it is something of an honor for us his widow opened the building for us and she also has a, uh, been a, a good friend to the the departments and and to many of us uh, and is also leading life in um, english literature literary studies so this is Catherine hall this is yeah. Hall, and i
0: should say for listeners in one country in particular, when you have a building named after you at a British university, it doesn't mean you left any money.
1: <laughs> yes, on <laughs> yeah, the contrary, in Stuart's case. But um, no, it's, it, it's, um, it's really nice to be working here. Um, it gives us, I think, a sense that we're not only involved in an intellectual um, adventure, but also in a, a political project mm. that mm. is integral to the kind of Research and teaching that we want to undertake.
0: And could you give a bit of context for listeners outside the UK in particular about Goldsmiths as a place Mm. and about the media and communications department that you jointly run?
1: Yeah, I'm probably one of the worst people to ask because I've only been (laughs) here for a a short while. But um, the Goldsmiths is what in the States would be called a liberal arts college. Mm. So there uh, is... Uh, There are no faculties here as such, um, but we have um, social sciences and humanities and a very highly regarded art school. um, And some other kinds of uh, neighbouring departments or areas like design, education, psychology. Mm -hmm. But there's no engineering, no med school, no hard sciences. And that's very unusual in the UK context. In fact, I believe we're the only um, institution that would have that profile Um, so that gives us a very unusual position. Mm. Goldsmiths has a history which we encapsulate in a a department slogan of critical, creative and radical. And it's pretty accurate. Um, we would debate any one of those terms, um, as, as many of your listeners know, the word creative has been captured for all sorts of, um, Unusual purposes, the word critique has become... No longer itself. unusual <laughs> to <laughs> say, actually. But, yeah, critique. And the word yeah. critique is, is yeah. open to critique. And um, <laughs> and even the word radical is is contested by people who, in a broad sense, would be seen as uh, progressive, of the left, of mm. the mm. Um, feminist, queer... Um, uh, no, <laughs> radicals. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so although the, the terminology is hotly contested, as, as is almost everything from the colour of the carpets to um, <laughs> the, uh, your turn of phrase, in, in the Goldsmiths vein, it is an incredibly intellectual hothouse environment mm. and it mm. is characteristically one where um, the politics is centrally about... Um, building mm. alternatives and mm. understanding the, the nature, not only understanding, but combating the nature of uh, whatever it is any individual wants to combat, but it's you know capitalism, patriarchy, racism, imperialism. Uh, I was having a conversation yesterday with uh, Golan Kirbani, one of our
2: mm. colleagues
1: who's um, a specialist in Middle Eastern studies about the loss of the term imperial and imperialism in the era in which globalization became a key Mm -hmm. phrase in Mm -hmm. the, um, I guess, later 80s and through the 90s. And it's a really intriguing shift of vocabularies, but that kind of conversation is not at all untypical of the the institution Mm -hmm. that we're trying to battle through not only what the new is but also what we have occasionally abandoned in the recent past or not so recent um, believing that feminism was already over and the women had won um, which of course is far from the case so um, term a term like post-feminist would be uh, radically unpicked and unpacked Mm. in the common discourses, the corridor discourse, as well as the classroom and lecture hall.
0: And in terms of this word you use, combating, Sean, mm-hmm. what are you combating at the moment? Or alternatively, what are you forwarding? <laughs> yes, well, yes. Good
1: question. I spent, uh, I was thinking about this because I've got a prospect in uh, a couple of years of getting some sabbatical time to start a new project and I'm uh, uh, just wrapping up, um, Uh, one that has occupied me for a number of years. In 2004, I published a book called The Cinema Effect, the first line of which asks what what cinema does. Um, And then last year, I published a book which is effectively about how cinema and other visual technologies work. And the one that has just gone off to press called Finite Media, is about um, what things are made of. Mm. And in all of those cases, the and it's taken me, I would think, in total about 25 years to write those three books, um, do the research and finish the writing. There have been other bits on the on the way, but those have been my big projects. Um, the background to that, or the, the heart of it, is a very profound belief that we really do need to deal with materials. Mm -hmm. Whether those materials come to us in the form of texts or practices in terms of technologies and techniques or in terms of materials and energy, that one way or another, it is an obligation to confront those. And I think it's what maybe makes a difference between us and philosophers when we talk about being theorists that a philosopher in a sense operates on an axiom and she'll look at something like um, everything that exists is self-identical and then work through the implications of agreeing or disagreeing with that statement. Mm. What we do, however, is look at, um, equipped with as much philosophy as we can cram into our heads, we actually look at bits of furniture, texts, practices, people, (coughs) actions, situations, And those determine what we can think, because we're trying to think from the encounter with um, actually existing and mutating things in front of us. So I'd rather think the theory is is constrained, but also enabled by that confrontation. um, So whether as to what it's a combat about, (laughs) as a uh, it's. I'm not sure that there's a singular answer, although I think I could probably put it into a short phrase. Um, One of the great intellectual trends of the 20th century has been associated with the name of Foucault and the idea that politics is at the heart. If we talk about power, we're talking about politics. And on the other hand, um, from earlier in the century, and obviously originating in the previous century, is a Marxist tradition in which the economic and perhaps at its heart, the commodity, is the the central intellectual and practical object around which the discourse revolves. So between power and commodity, uh, and between the periodizations that go with those, Working in a fairly large sense of the word, or generous sense of the word, working historically on those in my last three big, those three interrelated projects. Um, it's also been about periodization and about the emergence of the contemporary, mm-hmm. or genealogy of the contemporary state of um, the political or even biopolitical construction of the commodity and the commodification of power um, in the 21st century. So it's a simultaneous
0: out. orgasm of Carl and Michelle. It is indeed, yes, yes, yes. I mean, I, I say <laughs> it trivially, but I mean yeah. it too. Yeah. It's trying to see to what extent they can be brought together. Mm. But Presumably what you're combating is an idealist notion.
1: It is in a very direct sense. Um, the it's now almost a, a straw man because it's mm. it's so commonly spoken. But the enemy would be neoliberalism. Mm. I think David Harvey is quite correct. that neoliberalism is an economic dogma. Mas- uh, uh, sorry, is a, a political project masquerading as an economic dogma. Mm. But the dogma is one of those real abstractions. The mm. market is not a. Um, a pure idol um, an ideological phantasm it is actually an operating system mm. um, of enormous scale um, so in a sense it is purely dogmatic to believe that there is an invisible hand of the market which is in fact i yeah. think in many respects taken over both from the as, as a criterion of truth it's taken over from both science and the monotheistic god um, the market knows in a way that once upon a time we were, would have said science knows. market
0: responds, the market quakes, the market trembles. Exactly, yeah. It's anthropomorphized completely, isn't it? Absolutely,
1: and yeah. the market has, has lost confidence. It's yeah. yes. a <laughs> poor little thing. <laughs> yeah. A frightening, frightening business. So it, it's, a, it's a very, on the one hand, it is a, a caricature of an intellectual project Mm. at the same time it is a highly successful political project Uh, and it is one that in especially in the practice of light the book about visual technologies I've tried to argue it is actually operating at an extraordinary fine grain inside for example digital technologies Mm -hmm. where the both a commodification uh, occurs and a kind of a particular mode of biopolitical power obtained in the design of camera chips, mm-hmm. computer screens, the ubiquitous capture and display technologies that in many respects govern contemporary perception. So, my sense there is it, it, it is a somewhat abstruse argument, I suppose, but it, it's an argument that the grain of capital is so tight Mm. that it actually operates absolutely almost at a quantum level in terms of the governance of our appreciation of time, our understanding of what is perceptible and what isn't, Mm. um, Mm. as well as operating on larger scales such as the... um, peculiar belief that we have that networks are good for example so it's but I, my interest really was in that um, gradual process over several hundred years of controlling and um commodifying the processing of light and visual mm. culture to a point where um today um Any colour can be exchanged for any other colour. Mm. It's just a pantone number, a hexadecimal code, an HSV value, uh, but it has no intrinsic meaning. Or a dollar bill. So,
0: in in other words, when I said idealism, that's not really the right term Mm. to use as your object of combat. It's more the incarnation Mm. of an idealist notion of the person Mm. in economic policy and practice, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is. It's in itself is kind of it's very intriguing because of course, when we talk about periodization and talk about movements from industrial capital through service capital to finance capital, for example, or from sovereignty through discipline to biopolitics and beyond, we're always aware that the, that's not a succession, it's a geology. Mm. They, these strata lie on top of each other. And in certain particular cases, you can see how older strategies, older relationships Mm -hmm. operate. So, and a really obvious one, or one that's just concerning me today as it happens, Mm -hmm. is um, that email is quite interestingly treated legally as interpersonal communication. Mm -hmm. It's treated by analogy with the postal service that preceded it. So the, the communication between individual persons is treated within a disciplinary framework in which we are expected to respect the privacy of the message mm-hmm. uh, by not opening the envelope. And most of the legal structures around spam, the governance structures, etc., of, of governing email, tend to respect the notion of a person. But if you look at cookie technology, then cookies are actually mm. governed on the basis that this is computer-to-computer Communication, and as uh, my friend David Sermon just said this uh, to me this afternoon, um, if we understand that browsers are actually sensors, then we're beginning to understand what's going on. Mm. Um, the tracking of um, mouse movements, obviously clicks and so forth, is a computer behaviour, and at that juncture, the user, which is the term tending to be used by most of the um, legal discourses at this stage rather than a person the user is actually treated as a component of the computer mm, mm-hmm. it's a really interesting yeah. change so on the one hand there's a there's mm. we've got a disciplinary person on the other we've got a biopolitical uh component in a system uh at the same time um we've also, if that's the case, we could drive it through, I'm, I'm not a great fan of Bruno Latour, but it, it, it's a nice touchstone or way of explaining that if the person ceases to be um, a person in, in terms of citizenship and so forth, and, and becomes uh, a, a data stream of behaviors, then what distinguishes it from other non-human actors? Mm. Mm. And that is where I've been working with the, uh, coming out of the practice of light and moving into the finite media book about environmental issues, does ask us some very fundamental questions about the, the, a politics that is based exclusively on human beings, if it is the case that human beings are not actually persons in quite the way that they have been under previous political and, and for that matter, economic regimes. So that raises I think some genuine questions, that's why I wanted to get into the materiality um, actually very much inspired by your work with Richard Maxwell.
0: So w- when you mention the environment uh, I think about the fact that you're one of the founders if not the founder of eco-media or eco-media <laughs> studies. Uh, I'm a, an, a, a gratis subscriber, anyone can subscribe for free and I learn a lot from the things you guys send along to us, but could you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, that's a, EcoMedia's.
1: uh, What do we call it now? Ecomediastudies.org. Um, is, um, it's a web-based community um, founded, but really founded, by graduate students um, and recent graduates from uh, grad schools in, mainly in the States and Canada, but a lot of people dotted around the world, um, number around uh, Pat Brereton at um, uh, Dublin City University, Pat Ingram at Middlesex, um, numbers of others now um, uh, internationally. And it began in part as these things do with uh, a movement within um, uh, literary studies um, and a degree in film studies of people looking at four texts about um, ecological and environmental issues and mm. developing a, a school of criticism about them so people like uh, Lawrence Buell uh, pioneered this in literature but a lot of people then begin to think, well, where can we move outwards? We want to look at comic books. We want to look at Swamp Thing. We want to look at... Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> i quite right. Too. Exactly. we
1: we'll look back at art history. And at a certain point, it's, fair, it's a very short step from that to start mm. asking questions about um, what are things made of? Mm. So we wanted mm. to both... To, well, there are two stages to this, I suppose. One was that there, there is a kind of genre study where you can say, this is an environmental film. So you can look at something like Herzog's Grizzly Man mm-hmm. and say, yep, that is a film about an ecological theme. Let's write essays about that, and we'll call that in eco-film studies or eco-media studies. But then you begin, it's for a similar history, with feminist studies or um, uh, anti-racist or... Uh, african-american film studies you don't just want to look at films which are explicitly mm. feminist mm. or explicitly uh, sexist or racist what you want to do is be able to say feminism african-american film studies and other areas are able to contribute to the understanding of anything you put in front of them mm-hmm. so if one stage of this was to say if environmental media studies are going to have any kind of real traction they need to get beyond the narrow genre and be able to say well you know we can not only talk about the environmental themes in Avatar but we can talk about the um, we can talk environmentally or in an ecologically informed way about um, closet dramas or um, Quentin Tarantino or
0: um." or the making of Avatar
1: exactly Yeah. Yeah. yeah and then the next stage was obviously to look at the materials of which these things are. Mm-hmm. made i think in my case one of the first triggers was um doing a small consultancy for a magazine in australia called art link who were talking about moving to online only and wondered about what the relative footprint of paper and uh, digital was going to be and This is particularly important in Australia because there's a huge politics about the paper industry and its uh, devastation of old-growth forests, especially in Tasmania. But we pretty much worked out, it was even Mm Stephen, that one way or another, the paper industry, which is ecologically pretty dirty, um, actually is not that much worse uh, than the hydro industries and... um, the other materials that are involved in disseminating electronic copy mm. so it that really opened my eyes i guess doing that little first bit of research mm. uh, so i've been working on the textual side for quite a few years at that point but i not really engaged with this and as i did the more <laughs> I got involved the more depressed I became. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all the things
0: you thought you knew you discovered you weren't supposed to think anymore
1: yeah they are yeah. It, it, it is just so horrible, so you know yeah. it starts with um little tales that you sort of know that kind of white lead paint is is poisonous, and that all those years you spent as a child chewing the um, window frames and probably kind of come back and uh ruin all the chances you ever get in that Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then it, it just goes on. Every time you look at some aspect of the um, the composition of, of machines, you look at something quite uh, banal, like um, how much fibre optic is laid in every year. It's, it's, um, I think this year it's expected to be something like 270 million kilometres Of fibre, And now that sounds okay because what you're dealing with basically is sand. And the world's got a fairly large supply of sand. It's not a big issue and that's what you fire up to make glass. But of course, optic glass is going to have to be very, very purified. So one of the questions is, how do you do that? Which is by extreme heat, which means energy. And the other question is, what happens to all the other stuff that is no longer in the glass because it was impurities. And, of course, the answer is it, it becomes chemical sludge and it has to be put somewhere. and it Far has away to, from us. Far away glass. from us, usually, uh, uh, although there are some hugely entertaining stories about, um, uh, for example, in California law, um, they're, they're very, very strict on um, landfill. You can't just dump toxic waste. They're very strict on it. So everything is shipped out of state to be processed and it goes to big plants in places like Kentucky. Uh, It's then burnt or filtered or chemically processed. And of course what happens is you produce more and more intense waste out of this. Some is clean enough to be buried, the rest is even more toxic and it's carried somewhere else. One particular research project demonstrated that um, not only did they make waste in total in the cycle of taking this round cleansing plants but the worst of it was then taken back to california as a landfill <laughs> <laughs> so it's a yeah there are all sorts of um basically ironic and funny tales um uh, the uh, pollution of surf beaches in san diego from the maciadoras in um, northern mexico for example
2: mm-hmm.
1: um you pay less for your tv set but
0: you pay for it environmentally <laughs> yeah um now we're obviously talking in part about issues of production and productivism mm-hmm. both in terms of the impact of production on the environment but also the impact of production on uh, the world as a notion of productivism and the requirement mm-hmm. to participate in this now you are a remarkably productive writer you've written an astonishing amount and too much uh, what interests me, though, is that y- you've suddenly had this extraordinary moment of, while well, publishing lots of other things all along the while, a quarter of a century producing these three books in a rush. Hmm. What was that like? Was that an accident in some way? And did you feel at the end of it, my God, this is postpartum and I, <laughs> I give up on everything?
1: No, I think, well, 2004 was the cinema book, cinema effect. Hmm. Um, and I'd been working, teaching film for... 14 years old at that stage Mm. so in a sense it was the kind of product of that and um, the actual writing took much less time Mm -hmm. Um, the practice of light took me ages that was eight years of real writing Um, bits of it would come out as articles talks lectures seminar series um, get Mm -hmm. reworked and reworked it went through three really significantly big different drafts uh, at one point it was a quarter of a million words and it's just absurd and it, so lots of it got thrown away and a, a big chunk of what got thrown away was what grew into finite media mm-hmm. so the, all the material stuff it's uh-huh. so about 30 or forty thousand words so. none
0: day call it recycling <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly yes you found <laughs> a, you found you had a toxic dump i did and you called it california <laughs> wonderful absolutely so yeah, it's the um, but there are two. There's, there's two things about it. One is there's a certain degree of urgency, I guess, that any of us feel when we undertake this kind of work. That mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it it matters not only to us as you know, to myself, uh, um, but you really want to publish it because it is public, and there mm. is some reason for doing that. Mm. Mm. And this, mm. which sounds a bit grand, but it's unavoidable, I suppose. The other is um, that writing is a craft and practice. And um, I know many of my colleagues really hate it. It's the worst and least interesting part. <clears throat> they love doing the work with, in archives or with real people or doing interviews mm. and all the other kind of research mm. practices. Mm. And writing up is just, you know, something you have to do at the end. Mm. But for me writing is, um, is a craft of its own and it, it's something I, I find, especially I think for the humanities end of the, the media studies spectrum and communication studies spectrum. It, at that humanities end, the practice of writing is extremely significant. And some of our greatest figures, um, Levi Strauss, um, Ronald Bach, John Berger, Butter Benjamin, are phenomenal prose stylists. Mm-hmm. And so amongst my uh, colleagues here, Sarah Ahmed is, is one of the great prose stylists of the 21st century. It's an absolute joy to read, as well as being an intellectual, of the most incredibly powerful and challenging kind. And Stuart Hall as well, as a, a, um outside of some of his technical writings, incredibly lyrical, mover of ideas and convinces, I think many of us, that the, the, the practice of language is not, as Bart once said, fascist, um, mm. that language may in a certain sense speak us but we do speak it mm. and in that contest we actually have the possibility for a, a genuine socially structured and informed but nonetheless creative practice Mm. Mm -hmm. which i think is we should never give up we shouldn't let the bad guys have the english language
0: and that animates and drives you in part it does that's a a wonderful statement a lovely way of, of putting it another question i had was something that, again, you mentioned en passant, or some would say, in passing. (laughs) Namely, you mentioned Australia, and Mm. you have a profile, not just here in Britain, but in many parts of the world, and my sense is... They'll never prove anything. (laughs) Right, exactly. Not the other Stuart Hall profile. (laughs) But that you have a reach, but also an interest, that takes Mm. you beyond whatever your current circumstances mm, may be. Mm. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and some of the challenges and the nice things that come mm, mm. with that attempt at cosmopolitanism or that experience yeah, yeah. of cosmopolitanism.
1: I was, uh, my parents were Irish. Um, and I was born in the UK. Um, my father was a country doctor and I grew up in a little village. Um, but very conscious of being Irish um great right, know uh, it's not in my accent i don't i, I i'm one of those kind of uh ex, ex-irish people who can take credit for all the nice things that don't actually have to um, take responsibility for the catholic church and uh, all the rather unpleasant things that happened in ireland um, but it, there is that some kind of sense of being the child of migrants mm-hmm. that i think it sticks with us um so I did, um, I had a fairly ordinary kind of upbringing and uh, I went to live in Montreal to, and went to grad school there. Um, was more or less in that order, I wanted to go and live in Montreal and, and the, the only wouldn't. way I could do it was, was go to grad school. Um, And this is a time, I arrived in Montreal the year that René Lévesque won the uh, elections, first time that the Parti Québécois, or or any French-speaking government, had had run the province. And a a time of real utopianism. It was a Mm -hmm. really exciting moment. Um, Came back to the UK in 1980, and 81 was the year of the urban uprisings. um, And I was in Dulston brixton um later on in other parts of london and the country um during the these huge urban uprisings which in many respects i think shaped my political um experience in, in much the way that 1968 shaped a previous generation mm-hmm. um so uh, i worked in liverpool it was a bitterly poor city in those days and, yeah. um respect still is um and then for or i said random in a sense we, we um, um moved to new zealand in 2000 and we there for six years and then in uh, australia for five or six and they really do change your view i think in if it had, if i'd been to ours first and then new zealand it might have been different but because we went first to our that's very much where i where our hearts went. And uh, Australians loathe it when Kiwis say this, but I'll say it anyway, that um, one of the things that is really striking is that the politics of Aotearoa New Zealand, that you can hear in its double name, is that indigenous Maori are at the heart of its political, social and cultural life in a way that simply isn't the case in Australia.
0: And just to throw in for listeners, an important part of this is that there was a proper treaty relationship struck mm. between the British colonisers in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and the Maori and other populations in a way that never happened in Australia. And yeah, That is both indexical yeah. and generative, I think, of yeah. this distinction. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, It's a huge, complex history, and I don't want to paint it in, in too utopian colour, but mm. one of the things that remains, though, is, is that... Although there is a, a a really powerful moral challenge to the presence of Indigenous Australians in, in even in the big cities, in in Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane, but there's there's something else in the everyday com, um, conversation with Maori culture. You think New Zealand is really like Australian, not unlike England, you know. And then each day you find something stranger and stranger. Um, there is, there is. A, a, again, I, I, I don't want to speak. Certainly, don't want to speak on behalf of uh, indigenous culture. Uh, but the the questions it asks, at the very least, the questions it asks of the pakeha um, settler or migrant communities. Uh, are constant, they're not horrible by any means. In fact, quite the contrary, they're, they're incredibly positive, affirmative experiences. They're not really new agey, although there's some kind of new age-ness about it. It's um, just as much about the fart jokes as it is about um, having conversations with ancestors. But it is a strikingly different world and way of living. And again, I don't want to be utopian about this. um, There is plenty of controversy, plenty of um, uh, political issues um, around uh, indigenous whaling, for example, all sorts of things. But it did make the challenge of trying to think environmentally inside my own Western tradition. um, It changed the nature of that, changed the colour of it. Um, two or three things I think in particular that it did. First was um, to understand that the world and us are not absolutely distinct. There is, a, uh, there is a continuum. Now we know that intellectually out of ecological science, but we don't know it environmentally, in our, even in our use of the word environment. You know, the environment environs, it's a surrounding not, that's not us and not thinking that way is a real challenge for the West, a huge challenge. Um, The second is about ancestors because um, there's a great, one of the towering expressions I think in Marx uh, is his work on technology and the factory in uh, the Grundrisse and he's arguing there that factory machines are basically dead labor by which he means they are the skills and knowledges of the of earlier generations that have been ossified and concretized into machines mm-hmm. which are then objects that can be owned by factory owners and which impose their temporal discipline on the factory worker and when i was talking this through with uh, great Maori documentary and and filmmaker, Barry Barclay, he said, you know, the difference between you and us is we know the names of our ancestors. Which I found one of the touchstones of, of the work that I've been doing in the last 15 years or so, that our technologies are places where we black box our ancestors. And that the debt that we owe our ancestors um, which is a living part of a, a genuinely living culture is actually denied to us by the culture that we've embraced under industrial capital in particular, and of course in network and digital capital nowadays. So the the wealth and knowledge of all those people who invented weaving and knitting and spinning and whose skills were then coded into Jacquard looms and punch cards and then become the core of programming all of those kind of lost to us imprisoned enslaved um, bound into a system that they no longer um, in which they're no longer recognized or spoken to and in which of course they then achieve the position of imposing their temporal discipline on us scary thought
0: well it's the process of fetishism uh, in in the sense of the disappearance or the hiding or the encasing of labor or one could say ancestry mm-hmm. in processes and objects that then become the real inheritance yeah, yeah so to speak wow okay that's wow that's great and in australia it was different Australia is a very
1: strange country it's um I was there during the Howard years. This is uh, so John
0: Howard, John Winston Howard, who was Australian Prime Minister for many years, a kind of nerdy suburban solicitor. <laughs>
1: yes, who also represented a fairly hard nosed um, uh, Liberal Party, which is a, a, a right wing conservative neoliberal party, um, very much driven by the resource boom. Um, Mass exportation. And a kind of aggressive
0: white nationalism.
1: Absolutely. Which which is in itself an interesting history. It it basically had um, a a party equivalent to the Tea Party or UKIP Hmm. had existed. um, Held by one called Pauline Hanson. Which represented especially rural populist um, reactionary racist constituency. And what happened was that that party was destabilised um, in a in very interesting way as it happens, which we'll talk about another time. But then it, all its core values and policies were then assimilated into uh, the Liberal Party at this um, under John Howard uh, and his successor, Tony Abbott, who was even more of that persuasion.
0: And has a, me- a kind of Bobby Charlton of... <laughs> <laughs> no, for <laughs> the ages in terms of a mean come over
1: absolutely right Yeah. Um, so, the, so there is that at the same time Australia's got a really powerful Labour Union history um, and it, it's reflected in the lucky country idea um, there, there has been a really powerful tradition um, and a generous tradition of um, Labour militancy And that's achieved a great deal of um, the the kind of welfare that people enjoy in Australia, quite correctly. Um, But it is also odd in the sense that because there is a a very bullying machismo about um, both government and management in Australia, there's a counter, rather Stalinist kind of bureaucracy, that characterizes aspects of trade unionism there. And the, a politics that is fundamentally based on these two models, um, it's very explicit in us. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist elsewhere. Uh, mm. it's, a, it's, I think it was John Pilger who re- originated the term socialism for the rich and uh, conservatism for the poor, capitalism for the poor. Um, in our public services in the UK, we also have a Stalinist regime of regulation over the national health and education and so forth, and um, a, a massive welfare state for the rich. So it's you know, it, it's just more explicit in Australia. Mm-hmm. Everything's more explicit.
0: So your inner Leon found himself <laughs> leaping <laughs> out of the ice-pick-driven grave.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. It's a wonderful place to live. Great colleagues, incredible... Incredible um, flowering of intellectual adventure from. I think I was situated around the magazine Art and Text, which came out of Sydney in the eighties. And
0: then New York, I guess. And then so. in New York as oh, yeah, well. Yeah.
1: Um, but around that, there were a, a, a group of extraordinary intellectuals. Mm. Um, Megan Morris amongst them. Probably mm. one of the one of many, really. Uh, mm. um, but they. So that Australia was not only a kind of bright, shiny place on the, on the map, but actually had a really distinct intellectual presence, oh. which it maintains still. And the tradition of public intellectuals is something that's truly enviable. I think, so Australia.
0: when it comes back yeah. to being here in mm-hmm. England or Britain, <laughs> you've got on the one hand, apart from your intellectual political commitments, which mm. obviously are implicated with this other stuff, The quasi-outsider perspective as being the child of migrants, and it's worth pointing out to people that Ireland is one of the original colonies and victims of Mm. English imperialism in a truly brutal and xenophobic and racist way that Mm. still obtains today in terms of everyday discourse about Irish people. Uh, And by going to these two wealthy, and regionally powerful and significant white settler colonies uh, you've also learned another outsider perspective from indigenous cultures mm-hmm. there but also something that i guess gives you a different optic sir, on britain because mm. it's so influential on daily life in those places yeah, yeah is
1: that fair to say it's true it's true i think the there was a certain point when um, i have a tendency to think in in threes and i
0: it's a Trinitarian. It is. Influence. It is. It's a Catholic upbringing. <laughs>
1: the um, so I, I had a little kind of mental map of indigenous, settler, and migrant as mm. the core constituents of of um, the uh, the nation state, and coming back to the UK, of course, that actually operates rather differently because indigeneity or the parallel claims. To indigeneity operate very very differently. So no UNESCO
0: sm- constantly trying to say that these English goat herds are not indigenous people. <laughs> right. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and there's no equivalent to the settler in the settler colonies of you know, North America, or uh, the Latifundias, or um, Australia, New Zealand. That there, there is no equivalent to the nullius to the eradication of uh, indigenous peoples in, in some of those territories, at least, and the seizure of lands and goods um, and seizure of intellectual property as well. And they not, so that that's rather different. And of course, Europe is a very intriguing place anyway, because here the question of the nation state was really put up for debate and political change around the Maastricht Treaty, which is one of the founding documents of the European Union. Because all the countries, member states, signed away chunks of sovereignty Mm. to their collective. And that's now a rearguard action being fought in a number of countries, including the UK, to regain sovereignty and to close back down on the model of the... Uh, the nation state that held back to um, the late 17th century and Westphalian treaty. So the, now the huge que- in the way that indigeneity raises the fundamental question about the n- inclusiveness or otherwise of the nation state in the settler colonies, in the UK and especially, but also in Europe more generally, it is a question of the migrant that if the migrant has to be governed but has no place in government, uh, if we have to warehouse somehow this unwanted mass of humanity, but we do not wish to allow them in any sense a stake in citizenship, then we've got the real crisis, I think, Mm -hmm. on top of any kind of economic and cultural ones, the real crisis is about, what it is that we consider to be the nature and notion of a state. The reason for this is, I I think we should all care certainly in Europe and for that matter in Australia, which has its own interesting migrant crisis. Um, But it is also a question about the conduct of politics. If on the one hand, indigenous and migrant peoples pose a real question about the conduct of politics as the administration of public life. What then about those other non-human agencies that we also exclude, in particular environmental agencies? And at this point, I think, yeah, I was, you, you always find yourself envisaging inviting the Pacific Ocean to come and address the UN, or <laughs> giving votes to trees, and it means it clearly not that. But then the principle is likewise, as with the freeing of slaves or the granting of suffrage to women, uh, or as Angela Davis argues would be the case with giving franchise to prisoners in States, um, the polity changes if you change who is in it and who, who, is, who defines it by their exclusion. So if we define our policy by the exclusion of the environment and say, no, we are stewards of the environment, we govern it, it has no part in its own government, then we're making a very distinct statement about what we believe to be the correct employment of politics, which is to administer control and preserve the integrity of a particular state of affairs and not to put anything at risk and certainly not to extend the franchise. The peculiarity is that we have just done so over the last 50 odd years. We have extended the franchise. In fact, given a massive swathe of political power to a non-human entity, namely the market, which is today composed of a vast network of computers with some human biochips plugged in. It is a cyborg, it is the actually existing cyborg, as we used to talk about it, actually existing communism. The actually existing cyborg doesn't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Terminator, it looks like NASDAQ. It is a massive network of algo trading, uh, computer control trade, and it has enormous political and obviously economic power, so the precedent is there for opening up the polity to a non-human entity. And in some respects, the the political project of these last three books has be, been not well, only to say we're all going to hell in a handbasket, <laughs> which is unfortunately the you know the way almost all environmental analysis ends up, but to say that there is a way out, and the way out is actually to be as radical as the neoliberals have been in giving to this cyborg market enormous political power. Our task is to create the conditions under which migrants, indigenous peoples, and environments have a stake, an equal stake in the recreation of politics. And only under those conditions can politics be what it was supposed to be from Aristotle onwards, which is basically the pursuit of a good life for all. Not just on not well, even Sean the majority.
0: Huber. Thank you very much. That is a fantastic tour de force, tour d'horizon, <laughs> and in fact of many horizons. Uh, tour de France. <laughs> yeah. And um, I hope you'll...
1: Welcome to the Peloton.
0: <laughs> come back into the pod and talk about future projects in the future. That was really great.
1: That's very kind, Toby. Thanks for inviting me along.